chapters 2 and 3. And so it's too much material for us to go through verse by verse. Uh, But what I would like for us to do is to go through and survey the seven letters to these seven churches. Because what I want us to see is the way that Jesus speaks to the churches that are facing crisis. Each one of their crises are a little bit different. And so he handles all of these churches um, uniquely, and yet there's patterns that are there for the way that he's speaking to the churches. Um, And it's it's actually really remarkable. Um, He handles all the churches in almost the exact same way, even though what he's saying to them is different. Um, A a little bit about the the context there, Um, the book of Revelation, a a lot of people, one, it's, 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 uh, it's a very controversial book, because uh, when it comes to interpreting it, it's very difficult to interpret. There's a lot of symbolism that's there. And it is, um, it's something where a lot of people either want to completely avoid the book or speculate about what do these symbols stand for? What do they correspond to in real life? And how do we interpret that? Uh, and interpreting the symbols is obviously a huge part of the book. Um, But the book was written to seven churches, and yet it's also written for the universal church. And so the the book is written for us. And you don't have to understand every symbol of the book and what those symbols point to in order to understand the message of the book. And uh, I would submit that we can understand the heart of God that's in the book and the theological messages of the book, and the central message of the book, um, without understanding what all of the symbols are. And so as we go into the book of Revelation uh, tonight, uh, there will be a lot that I, I don't talk about, and we're not going to define all of the symbols. And there are many of them, even in the, the letters to the churches, there's many symbols. Um, but my focus is not going to be on what those are, and there will even be symbols that we, we look at, but I'm not going to define what they are and what they correspond to, uh, because it's not, it's not needed in every single case to understand uh, what he's talking about. And I think that um, as we look at these letters, uh, I'd, like for, I'd like for you to be able to come away from this seeing what Jesus' heart is towards the churches that are facing crisis and how he handles that and what he expects from them and how they are to respond to him. Um, So something to keep in mind um, as we do look at uh, the the imagery that's here um, is that Revelation is written in a way where it causes your ears to make your mind visualize the things that it's talking about. So he, he writes in a way where he wants what is read. This book was originally read in the early church services. It would be read to the congregation. And the book is written in a way uh, for people to listen to it. And when you hear it, it's designed to get you to use your mind to imagine 
the, the things, the, the visions that John is painting. And when you imagine these visions that John is painting, um, there is an emotional effect that that should have on you. There are awe-inspiring images, there are fearful images, there are comforting images. And the book is written in a way where when you read it, you are meant to engage your whole person as you're reading it. And so as we go into uh, the first chapter and we read the opening vision of Jesus Christ, I would encourage you uh, to just allow yourself not only to hear it, but to try to imagine what it is uh, that that John is writing. Uh, Another important thing to keep in mind uh, as as we look at it um, is that the, the... book of Revelation, um, though it's written to the seven letters, as I just mentioned, it's also written to the universal church. Part of that is seen in John's use of seven. Um, There are many, many sevens throughout the book of Revelation, and seven is a number that is both um, literal, and these are literal historical churches that the book was written to, and yet at the same time, there's symbolic meaning in the number seven. Um, And so it's not by coincidence that John is also writing to seven churches. Um, You have seven days of creation, as as, uh, Eric mentioned today, um, going around the wall of Jericho seven times. Uh, You have the seven churches. You have uh, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. The word signs is written seven times. Uh, The word for to show, to reveal, seven times. Prophecy, seven times. Uh, Christ seven times. There are seven Beatitudes, and the list goes on and on and on and on. And part of that, the theological idea that comes with seven is perfection and completion. And so, again, it's not by accident that John writes to seven churches. In fact, if you were to look at, uh, a lot of people see the book of Revelation as breaking up into seven sections. And in the first section, you have seven churches. If you look at these seven letters, so track with me, if you look at these seven letters to seven churches, um, the seven letters break down each one into seven sections that exactly parallel each other, exactly. And so uh, originally when I was preparing the message, I thought I'd have seven points. And then as I looked at those seven points, I said, there is no way that's going to happen. So we'll do it in three. So... um, but all of that to say that, um, that chapters 2 and 3, they're all, if you have red-letter Bibles, they're all red-letter words. They're the words of Christ um, that John is writing to the churches. And yet there is this essence to it to where, even though these letters are to the churches, the message is for the entire church. So if you will turn with me to Revelation chapter 1, we're going to start in... Uh, verse 9, and I'm going to read 9 through 20. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, 
to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed in a robe reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his his hair were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire, his feet like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in the furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, and the living one. And I was dead, but behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So my aim tonight as we survey these churches is to show you that Though each church faces slightly different crisis, Jesus approaches all of them in the same way. And this teaches us how God relates to the church in crisis and what they should do as churches are facing crisis. To each church, Jesus establishes three things. And this will be the outline tonight if you're taking notes. Number one, Jesus establishes himself as the church's sufficiency and power to face their crisis. Number two, Jesus assesses the church as it faces its approaching crisis. And number three, Jesus promises victory to all who overcome their crisis. So number one, this is the first pattern. Jesus establishes himself as the church's sufficiency to face their crisis. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to skim, and I'm going, to, I'm going to hop around a little bit to each one of the seven letters. And so if, you, if you're having a hard time following, don't, don't feel bad. Um, I'm going to pop around a little bit. What I want us to do is see the similarities in all of these letters. So in chapter 2, verse 1, the letter to Ephesus, to the angel of the church of Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven lampstands. And Jesus appeals to himself here as the one who is holding the church and its direction. And so the images here of the the stars in his hand and the lampstands come from what we just read in this opening vision. So John gives this vision of Jesus and Jesus is depicted in this vision and then from that place he's addressing these churches so that these churches as they consider the words of Christ, they're also looking back to the vision of the one that is speaking. So he speaks of stars and 
lampstands. The lampstands, we read in verse 20, are the churches. The lampstands are the churches. Now the stars, it says, are the angels of the churches. Now some see these as real angels that are representing the congregation. Uh, It is probably best to understand these as symbols for the pastors or the leaders of the churches. Uh, so the, the word for angels can also mean messengers. And so it seems like it's, it's, it's probably best to understand the stars in his hands as referring to the leaders of these seven churches. And so if that's the way that it's to be understood, um, then you have a picture of Jesus who is holding the leaders of these churches in his hand and is holding the direction of the church in his hand as they're facing a time of crisis. To Smyrna in chapter 2, verse 8. To the angel of the church of Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and who came to life. Now this goes back to the vision as well. In chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. So Jesus has authority over death and over the underworld, and he lives in immortal victory. And it is from that place of living in victory that he is speaking to these churches. To Pergamum, 2.12, to the angel of the church of Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. And 2.18, to Thyatira, to the angel of the church at Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. The eyes like fire and the feet like burnished bronze are language talking about the Son of God, probably from the book of Daniel, depicting Christ as the Son of Man from the book of Daniel. Both passages point back to the opening vision, but they also point forward to Revelation chapter 19. The vision that's in 11 through 21, which says in verses 12 through 15, his eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, which are crowns. And he has, the name, he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on their horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which he is to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And so Jesus is addressing this church as the one who takes victory over all things. The one who will rule the nations who has the keys to death and hell, who lives in immortality, and it is from this place that he is writing to the church facing their own crisis. From this place of victory, from this place of having conquered, he's writing to this church, telling them that they also must conquer. To the church in Sardis, chapter 3, verse 1, to the angel of the church of Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God, and the seven stars. And so the, the seven spirits are referred to four separate times in the book of Revelation. Chapter 1, verse 4, here in 3, 1, 
in chapter 4, verse 5, and in 5, verse 6. And in 4, 5, in the scene of the throne room of God, he writes, From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. Before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And 5, 6, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain, with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And so here to the church in Sardis, Jesus appeals to himself as the one with the fullness of the Holy Spirit, and again, the one who is holding the direction of the church. He holds the seven stars in his hand. And so it is the one who has the fullness of the Spirit and who is holding the direction of the church in his hand. That's the one who is writing to them. To Laodicea, the seventh church, in 314. To the angel of the church of Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. And so to, I'm sorry, I skipped Philadelphia. In 3.7 to Philadelphia, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David and who opens and no one will shut, opens the door that no one will shut and who shuts and no one will open. To both Philadelphia and Laodicea, again, you have references that are connecting these churches to the vision in chapter 19. And so in 19.11, he says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. And so to both Philadelphia and to Laodicea, Jesus is described as the true one, the faithful one. And later on in the book, where Jesus is depicted As judging the nations, his name is faithful and true. And it's in faithfulness and in truth that he brings judgment to his enemies. And so we survey these to see that every church in crisis, to every single church in crisis, Jesus first appeals to himself. He's not appealing to them. He speaks to each one by name and calls them by name because He knows them, they're unique, their identities are different, but in every single case, he's appealing to himself and to who he is and his own attributes as being the one who has overcome already himself. He is the one who has the power to enable the church to overcome in their trials. And so he begins every single letter to every single church, first appealing to who he is. It is his sufficiency that gets the church through its trial. And so in a time of trial, Jesus is our sufficiency. Therefore, we come together and we press into prayer and we seek him because he is our sufficiency. In a time of trial, Jesus is our sufficiency. Therefore, we look forward with eager expectation to what God will do. In a time of trial, Jesus is our sufficiency. 
Therefore, we patiently endure with hope. The second pattern that we see is that Jesus assesses every single church that's facing crisis. To every single church, he says, I know your works, I know your works, I know your works. To Pergamum, he says, I know your dwelling, I know where you live, I know what's going on. He says, I know your dwelling. But to every single one of them, I know, I know, I know, I know. He knows them. He knows what they do. He knows what they don't do. He knows what they're going through because he knows his own. In his assessments, sometimes Jesus warns the church and he tells them things that are hard to hear about themselves. But they're things that they need to hear. And so, for example, to Ephesus, in chapter 2, verses 2 through 5, Ephesus was enduring trial, but they stopped loving well. He says in verse 3, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you have at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent. To Smyrna, in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, Smyrna was faithful, uh, but would still suffer in the near future. Uh, which is, um, they, they were going to suffer. And Jesus was telling them they were going to suffer. But they were faithful as well. And they weren't going to suffer because they were unfaithful. But in God's providence, this church was going to suffer even though they were faithful. He says, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. To Pergamum, chapter two, verses 13 through 16. Pergamum was a mixed church in the midst of a demonic culture. Many kept the faith, but some were sexually immoral and idolatrous. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And yet you hold fast to my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, when my faithful, wit- my faithful witness who was killed among you, was a member of their church that was martyred, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who are holding the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So they were a mixed church, and though some were faithful, they needed to be rebuked as well. In 2.19-25, Thyatira had some members who were growing in holiness, but others who entertained false teaching and practiced sexual immorality as well. I know your works... Your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess, and in teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. So the sin in their midst, Jesus is calling it out as he's assessing them. To Sardis, Sardis had a reputation in chapter 3, verses 2 through 4. They had a reputation that was great in their community, but their spiritual life was dying. 
He says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard and keep it and repent. It's worth noting here that a dying spiritual, spiritual life in Jesus' eyes is an issue of repentance. If our spiritual life is dying, then perhaps he's calling us to repentance or us individually to repentance. To Laodicea, chapter 3, verses 15 through 20. Laodicea was a half-hearted church who through luxury became indifferent towards godliness. In 3.17, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I'm in need of nothing not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. But sometimes Christ's words of assessment are hard to hear. But the church has to let Christ assess her. Every church has to. Every Christian has to let Christ assess them. Sometimes it's very hard to hear his words but he who speaks is faithful and true. And so we have to let him assess us as Christians. And we have to hear things sometimes if they're hard to hear. Now, to some of the churches, they were commended. And they were told things that were commendable, which they too need to hear. So he encourages the church in Philadelphia. So for example, in chapter 3, verses 8 through 11, Philadelphia was weak, but a faithful church who is patiently enduring suffering. He says, I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word, and you have not denied my name. Now again, for all seven churches, in every single case, Jesus assesses the churches because he knows them. He understands who they are, what they're facing, and he knows what they need to do. Some are warned, some are commended, and every one of them are offered hope. Every church and every Christian facing crisis has hope because of the one speaking to them and the one who knows them, who has the power to get them through their crisis. Every single Christian and every single church facing crisis has hope because of their Savior in who he is. So Jesus assesses every church facing crisis. Therefore, we seek to discern the mind of Christ. What is the mind of Christ? And we do this by staying in the Scriptures. And we do this by trusting God's providence. He calls us to seek to discern the mind of Christ. Jesus assesses every church facing crisis. Therefore, we repent where needed, as in the case with some of these churches, and we persevere where being found faithful, as in the case with other churches. We repent where needed, and we persevere where being found faithful. The third pattern that we see is that Jesus promises eternal victory to all who overcome. 
to Ephesus in 2.7. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. 2.11 to Smyrna. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And notice also in every single case, the letter is written to the church. But he says, he who has an ear, this is said seven times, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And he uses the plural, which shows that each church is also meant to read the letters of the other churches. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. To Pergamum in 2.17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name. Written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. To Thyatira in 2.26-29. The one who conquers and who keeps my words until the end. To him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken into pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To Sardis in 3, 5-6. through six. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To Philadelphia 3.12 The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And finally, to Laodicea in 321. To the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now one thing that's striking about these images is that every single one of these images that we just read is found in the end of the book. In the last vision of the book in chapter 19 through 21, every single one of these references are found there. Every single promise that we just read to these churches speaks to the church obtaining the inheritance, the eternal inheritance that God has for the church. Every single one of them is a way of Jesus saying to the church, if you overcome through your patient endurance, if you overcome through your faithfulness, and by God's grace, if you overcome, you will obtain the inheritance that God has for his people. 
because every church is promised her inheritance for overcoming, every church must realize that her inheritance is on the line as she's persevering through suffering. So perseverance is no light matter. It's not a light issue. Our inheritance is on the line. We have to persevere in our faith. But by God's grace and through Christ's power, we will. And so we are called to trust in him who is first appealing to himself as he's assessing his people and calling them to overcome and giving them the promise of their inheritance. Jesus promises the church her inheritance in times of crisis. Therefore, we patiently endure in all of our trials. We patiently endure through suffering. Whether those are trials that we face as a church, or trials that we face as individuals, we patiently endure under suffering because of the one who is calling us and enabling us and assessing us and promising us. We patiently endure. Our trials will not destroy us. They will bring growth in holiness by God's grace. Jesus promises the church her inheritance in times of crisis. Therefore, we trust the one who is holding our lives. We trust the one who holds the stars in his hands. We trust the one who is walking amongst the lampstands in our midst. The one whose presence is sustaining us. The one who sustains all things. Who has conquered death. Who alone dwells in unapproachable light. Who is immortal and eternal and invincible. We trust him as he sustains us. We come together. And we walk with him. We allow him to speak his words of truth to us. And we have to have an ear to hear what he's saying. But we trust him because our inheritance is on the line. And he is promising us. Jesus promises the church her inheritance in times of crisis. And so by God's grace, we obtain our inheritance. And we walk with him. Because he is kind, and he is merciful, and he doesn't forsake us. And we know that because we walk with him. And as we go on through life, we look back and we reflect on our own lives. And we know his faithfulness. And, and every one of you know his faithfulness. When you walk with him and you look back and you think on your own life. And you know where he could have left you, and he didn't. And you know how he's carried you through times of trial. And he's faithful, and he's good, and he's powerful, and he's able, and he is there, and he hears, and he sees, and he speaks, and he calls, and he enables, and he will see us through. 
And so by God's grace, we trust him. And we obtain the inheritance that he has by patiently enduring through trials. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. You are the living God. You know all things. You are infinite in your wisdom. You are perfect in your power. You are gracious towards us. Lord, we thank you that as these churches faced trial, as these Christians faced trial, you spoke, you filled them, you carried them through. And for your church universal, for all churches, for Fisherville Baptist. We too are called by your name. And Lord, we thank you for who you are. Lord, we pray for your grace in our lives to press into you, to trust you, and to obtain the inheritance that you have for us. And we ask this in the name of your Son, who is faithful and who is true, the Word of God, Jesus Christ. Amen.